0: Listen as I read Titus 1, 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. God, this is your word. Would you speak? Give me clarity. Help me to explain and defend your truth and allow it to sound forth in a way that magnifies you and puts you on display and gives you all the glory. Would we learn much about the grace of your gospel tonight from this passage in your son's name? Amen. By the beginning of any letter, you can tell what's up by the first few words or sentences or the first paragraph. I may or may not have received these letters recently. Dear Mr. Ng, we regret to inform you. Dear Matt, every year, Resurrection Sunday is a joyful reminder of the great work. Yahweh does through our church. To whom it may concern, I am pleased to submit my resume for your consideration. Dear Honda owner, this letter is to notify you of a potential problem with your vehicle and what you should do to resolve it. Dear Matthew, join the millions of Quicksilver cardholders who earn cash back on every purchase every day. Well, unlike the credit card mailers stuffed into your apartment mailbox that you know you haven't checked in a while, Paul's first words in this letter to Titus are no throwaway. They are packed with actual meaning. These words matter. They have significance. They have weight. Here in the beginning of Titus, Paul issues gospel greetings. Gospel greetings. These greetings give us a grasp of what this whole letter is all about. It's a microcosm of what's to come. Our pastor John says it's vacuum-packed with truth. And when you open it, it starts to expand. This brief section is a window into the kind of people that God uses. Humble, willing servants like Paul and like Titus... It's a perspective on their heart and their understanding of their roles in the kingdom. But these words do much more than just welcome us into the letter. They are a 10,000 foot view of the hope of eternal life. God's redemption plan. How it began and how it got to us as Gentile believers in the 21st century. These gospel greetings, these words will confront our short-sightedness, our inability to see or believe or trust beyond the current moment. We are, Grace on Campus, so fixated often on what's just right in front of us. This quarter, this season, this cultural moment, this tragedy, this week. And so our faith in turn becomes fixated on only what God is doing now, on what he seems to not be doing when we need him to do something, or what he should be doing for us or on behalf of us to fix our fractured existence on this, on this earth and to save us again from our boogie monsters and give us the blessings that we deserve right now. We're short-sighted. Our faith is so small and self-focused because our perspective of God's work is often so small. Our time frame of reference is, is short. The finite eyes of our minds can only see so far. Well, this gospel greeting shows us the full Timeline, that since before the ages began, the eternal God, unchanging and immovable, the God who never lies, promised salvation before the ages began. This will give us perspective on the sureness of our salvation. This will help us to trust a faithful God amidst trial and tribulation. Most of all, it will give us confidence in the expectation that God will do as he promised. You see, at the heart of these gospel greetings is just that, the gospel. And so the beginning here will help us to understand the gospel of God, how it works to change lives, how it truly is of grace and mercy, how the God of grace works through time and through space to bring us to himself through the work of Jesus, and the preaching of the gospel by men like Paul and Titus. So let's look at this gospel greeting under three headings. The first is the servant and apostle, the servant and apostle, and we see that in verse one. Paul, the sender of this letter, the author, by the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. And we may have some familiarity with his story, but as we begin this letter, it's important that we really understand Paul's roots, his story, his testimony, his actual conversion. Because to know Paul's story is to know why he writes what he writes. It's to know his heart, the heart of a man who's dedicated to gospel progress The heart of a man who called himself, in verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians 1 with me. And we'll see a little bit of Paul's understanding of himself. Galatians 1. Look at Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the people. So extremely zealous for, was I for the traditions of my father's. These verses are Paul's BC days, his former life as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a persecutor even of those who would follow Jesus. Paul says he was here in verse 13, advancing, excuse me, 14, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was, he was a bright young seminarian in that regard in the school of Judaism. And verse 14 tells us it was beyond even his accolades. It was in his heart. He's so, he was so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And so Paul, who was called Saul back then, found himself persecuting the church of God, the people of the way. He was headed to Damascus. He was, Acts tells us, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. On his way to Damascus, Acts says, so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And You know the story. God gets a hold of Paul, a light from heaven shone around him, and a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, according to Acts, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Curie or Curios? Who are you, Master? And the answer I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And we know Paul is blinded. He gets up and is is led by the hand into Damascus and spends three days in Damascus without sight. And he didn't eat. He didn't drink. And God speaks in a vision to one of the disciples, Ananias, who is rightfully skeptical. He's scared of this guy, Saul, who's blind. And in the living room, in Acts 9, God says to Ananias, go, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the text tells us immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he, Paul, rose and was baptized, taking food and he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And Acts tells us, and immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Just a week earlier, Saul had said, Anybody who believes that Jesus is the Son of God should go to jail in Jerusalem. And just a week later, God takes a hold of his life and he is proclaiming in the very synagogues he was going in there with handcuffs for, he was proclaiming, Jesus, he is the son of God. God changes his life. God saves him. God grabs him by the shoulders and shakes him awake and calls him into the kingdom of his life. Paul describes his understanding of this transformation. Look back at Galatians 1. Look at verse 15. Paul says, but when he who had set me apart, when? Before I was born. And who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It was from Damascus on that Paul would serve his Lord, his Kyrios, his master. The one who had called him out of darkness and into light on that dusty road. Turn back to Titus. And so Paul, as he begins this letter in the fashion of the day, where the author would first introduce himself. Paul describes himself. He introduces himself. He gives his title, his credentials, And he writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. When's the last time you updated your LinkedIn? You should. So keep it up to date. Anyone can have Microsoft Office skills endorsed by their homies. But One of the main things you should focus on as you update your LinkedIn, not now, but tonight, what you should really have dialed in is your job titles. the probably the most important thing: senior analyst, executive assistant, marketing coordinator, account executive, assistant to the regional manager. no matter what your actual job is, your title will always somehow make you sound or feel more official than you probably are inside. Director of something or other, you're directing three people in the break room because you don't have a real office, but you're a director. Our world inflates job titles. We're always a little bit more senior and a little bit more executive and a little less junior, and that's an integrity or a pride sermon for another time. But we always, the point is, want to make ourselves sound more important than we really are. Paul was the opposite. He was a, the word is, slave. He served the living God who had made him alive in Christ. Paul considered himself from, who are you, Lord, on the Damascus road, until the very end of his life, He considered himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave. His master was Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, literally stopped in his tracks and given a divine appointment to preach the gospel. Paul was willing to do anything that his master wanted. And Paul, he only wanted to serve God. Paul also here in verse 1 is not only a servant of God, a slave of God, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds really important, right? Apostle. But that's because as Christians, we've, we know what an apostle is. And so we think highly of apostles. Well, the word apostle is literally a sent one, a messenger, a delegate. And in the ancient world, more often than not, messengers were actually slaves. And so Paul is a messenger, specifically of Jesus Christ, who had literally called him on that road. Paul was a messenger of a message that was not his own, but that belonged to his master, Jesus. Paul, the servant and apostle. Now, what is Paul's purpose as servant and apostle? Why does he serve? What, what is he sent out for? Well, look at verse one again. Paul believes his apostolic role to be one, firstly, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And secondly, for their knowledge of the truth. Paul understands his responsibility is to preach the gospel to establish the message of truth amongst God's people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He came, as Paul writes in Titus 2.11, to bring salvation for all people. God's Word shows us that God's working of salvation begins before even creation. We see it even in this passage in a few verses. That God in his infinite wisdom and kindness chose, what Paul calls here, the elect, those whom he would save. And Paul here recognizes that his role in God's kingdom, in God's redemptive plan, is that he would be the apostle, the sent one to preach and establish the good news. So that God's elect, God's own, who were called from before time, would have a real world person in their own time so that they would come to him in humble faith. Faith that is not dependent on our works, but faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. And so if you are saved in a way, if you are God's elect, the Apostle Paul from this passage is your spiritual lineage. Paul is in large part how God beautifully designed his redemption plan. And Paul is the human means by which many of us know Jesus. The long line of saints who proclaim the gospel. He was one of the very first. Paul also sees his apostleship as for the purpose of the benefit of Christians' knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth, this is a phrase used in 2 Timothy, uh, describing devious men, men who are false teachers, who are, as Paul says, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. In some, in some way, the knowledge of the truth is salvation knowledge. It's salvific knowledge. It's an understanding of the true facts about the gospel so that you can believe. But the knowledge of the truth is also... A growth in understanding about God and and His Word and His truth. That through that knowledge of the truth, we would know God. That we would know more about Him. That we would know the intricacies of Christ's work and, and His life. And that we would understand and embrace the Spirit's work in our lives and the doctrines of grace. Paul says all of these things. The faith of God's elect the knowledge of the truth, all accord with godliness. You see, the faith and the knowledge of those who have been redeemed agrees with. It logically extends to. It leads to godliness, godly character, and the good deeds that flow out of godly character to know God savingly and to know more about him is to be transformed from the inside out. This is the message of Titus and it's the message of the Bible over and over. That our faith isn't just a decision. Our knowledge of God isn't just something that makes us puffed up. These things lead to godliness. And Paul shows us that even in this gospel greeting. To be more like Christ, to grow in godliness. This is the purpose of Paul's ministry to the saints. And so as Paul writes, he establishes his role, his authority. And he sets forward these two very humble job titles. Slave or servant of God and one sent apostle. Of Jesus Christ. This is Paul, the humble author of this letter, Paul, the servant and apostle. Servant and apostle. Secondly, tonight we see the hope and promise, the hope and promise in verses two and three. Here in the middle of this gospel greeting, Paul unpacks his. Understanding of the incredible nature of God's redemptive work. How God's plan of redemption transcends time and human logic. And yet how, by God's amazing grace, we have found the gospel in time and in space and in human history. In Paul's time being preached in Jerusalem, and Judea, in, Sumeria, in Samaria, and now on the island of Crete in this book, and even to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Paul, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth are in or founded on the hope of eternal life. You see, the faith and the knowledge of the elect is based upon the hope of eternal life. Whenever you see the word hope in the Bible, it refers to a confidence, an expectation, a sure thing. It's not hope as you would cross your fingers and wish for something to happen or some kind of dream or some kind of possibility that you're Hoping will happen. Instead, it's this looking forward to something that you know will happen. It's an expectation that a promise will be fulfilled. It's a trust, a certainty that God has done what he says he will, and he will continue to do so. And so this is the hope, the confidence of eternal life that the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness is based on. Why can we have such confidence? Look at verse two again. Which God who never lies promised. Why? Because God has promised it. Our faith is founded on God, not just an abstract concept of God or loose ideas or stories about God, but God who acted in history and in space and in time, the God who never lies. Hebrews 6.18, referring to God's promise to Abraham, the author of Hebrews writes, it is impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Those are rhetorical questions. He will do it and he will fulfill it if he has said it or he has spoken God, by nature of who he is, does not lie. The unchanging, eternal God with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He is the one who has promised this hope of eternal life with him. You can take it to the bank. Now, I don't know if you've ever known a compulsive liar. Someone who just cannot tell the truth. Someone who can look you in the eye and tell you bold-faced lies over and over and over again. I really hope you've not had that experience. I've known in my life two compulsive liars. It is the most perplexing and Really unsettling thing. To look someone in the eye and ask them something and not be sure if they are telling the truth, telling the partial truth, lying again. Everything they say, you know they're lying or you're assuming they're lying or they're probably lying. It is absolutely the strangest insecurity you can have. And it's a very frustrating relationship to have. Characteristically, compulsive liars always lie. What Paul is saying here is God is not just a generally honest person, a normal person like maybe me and most of you guys who try to tell the truth and most of the time tell the truth and repent when we lie. God is not... Amen. He is perfectly truthful. He never lies. He does not lie, and he cannot lie. And so in our hope of eternal life with him, we can be sure. We can be certain. We can be confident that God will follow through on his promise of eternal life. And our text tells us that God promised this plan of eternal life before even the ages began. That is, God determined before creation, before the world even existed, that he would redeem some from unworthy, fallen humanity in Christ to eternal life. We talked about this even this past Sunday with Pastor John. He flips to our passage, Titus 1, and showed us that God never lies and that he would bring his elect to himself as a love gift to the Son. We also looked this past Sunday, and let's hear again, 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus Before the ages began. The same phrase Paul uses in the other pastoral. And then Ephesians 1, like we were in in this past Sunday, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, to the purpose of his will. So here in Titus 1-2, our hope, our confidence is built on this promise made before even time began by the God who never lies. And so if God promised this before time began, then how do we know about it? How do we in the 21st century know about the salvation provided for us before time began. Well, look at verse 3. And at the proper time manifested or displayed in his word through the preaching with which I, that is Paul, has been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God in his grace and in his kindness revealed these things to us through human beings, through preachers, through the Apostle Paul. And at the appointed time, God sent his Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. A life, though perfect, was destined for death on a cross. Acts 2.23 says that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in all of this, in his life on this earth, Jesus was here to do his father's will. In John 6, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus died a sinner's death in our place for our sins. The prophet Isaiah, before even the apostle Paul long ago said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And later in that famous chapter, Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, and it was the Father's will to crush Him. This was the Word made flesh. And on the third day, God raised Him from the dead that anyone who would believe in Him and place their faith in Him for His saving work will be saved from their sin. God places the righteousness of Christ on us and our sins On his son. This was all the Father's plan since before time began. This is what God promised the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is what God had predestined. This was the Father's will. This is the gospel in 1 verse 3 the good news, the word Paul was to preach. And Paul says, this word, this gospel, this is the message I am commissioned to preach. This is the preaching, Paul says, I have been tasked with since the road to Damascus. And as you see in Acts, and through all the letters of Paul in the New Testament, Paul was a faithful servant of God, a faithful messenger for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because Paul preached and wrote and commissioned gospel work like he does in Titus, as God's servant and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, now we know this truth. Now we have come to believe because God has been gracious to give us human instruments like the apostle Paul. This is the hope and promise, the hope and promise of the gospel. The hope of eternal life that God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This is the hope and promise of the gospel. Third, we see the son and co-laborer. The son and co-laborer. Let's take now a look at Titus, the recipient of this letter from the Apostle Paul. Like with Paul, we see the kind of person that God uses, a humble person, a faithful person, a useful person. Look at verses 4 and 5. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is both son and co-laborer in this passage and throughout this book. Titus is, as Paul says here, his true child in a common faith. He is also Paul's co-worker in the gospel, his ministry associate. Here in verse 4, Paul calls Titus, my true child in a common faith. To Paul, Titus was his child, his spiritual son. Titus was in his small group. When we think of Paul calling someone a son in the faith, who do you think of? Probably think of Timothy, right? Well, Paul calls Titus here the same thing. This speaks to the closeness, to the the affection, to the, the tight relationship. Most likely, Titus was truly, to Paul, a spiritual son. He had probably come to faith under Paul's ministry. Paul the apostle, the Jewish persecutor turned preacher, probably ministered to Titus, and Titus came to faith. And so he calls Titus here a true child in the common faith. And think about that for a second. Paul, the Jewish apostle, is calling Titus, who we'll see in a second, was a Greek, a true child in what? A common faith. A Jewish persecutor turned preacher calling a Greek man, in the first century of the gospel spread, a true child in a common faith. The beauty of the gospel. Titus' name is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, in 2 Timothy, and here in Titus. Galatians tells us that Titus was a Greek. Turn back to Galatians, look at chapter 2 now. Galatians 2, verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, Paul writes, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Titus, a Greek man, he's with Paul in Jerusalem, according to Galatians 2 verse 1. He's he's there in Jerusalem. And Paul says, Titus was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. It was the custom in that day at least from the early believers' understanding that when you believed in Jesus, that you were also to be circumcised. And in the New Testament, Paul works through this issue over and over and over, saying salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. You do not need to do works, circumcision included. And so Titus was a prime example of this, a true believer, a Gentile, a Greek man that was not forced to be circumcised. Look at verse four of Galatians 2. It says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out that our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, uh, so that they might bring us into slavery. That slavery we're referring to Slavery of the law, of of bondage to works, of needing to be circumcised. The party of circumcision, they're called elsewhere. Even in the book of Titus, we'll run into this party of circumcision. So this is important later. These people were demanding that new Gentile converts be circumcised. But Paul says here in Galatians, Titus is our proof he is our evidence of a genuine believer a life changed so you can't force him to be circumcised he's truly regenerated and so the issue here in galatians and all over the new testament and even in the book of titus and in the jerusalem council in acts 15 is this issue of salvation by works or by circumcision versus salvation by grace alone And Paul and Titus maintain in all of these instances that salvation is by faith alone. Circumcision is not necessary for conversion. Praise God, right? And so Titus played a hugely important role in the early stages of our common faith as a Greek, as a Gentile. He was living Proof as to God's work in Gentile believers. His life was a a testimony of God's life saving and life changing work. Second Corinthians gives us an even deeper look into the ministry partnership between Paul and Titus. Flip over to Second Corinthians, just back a few pages. Second Corinthians 2. Verses 12 and 13, you don't have to turn there, but flip, flip to chapter 7. But in chapter 2, Paul wanted so badly to see Titus that, and be encouraged by fellowship with him that he says his spirit was not at rest because Titus wasn't there yet. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7. Look there. But God, who comforts the downcast, Paul writes, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul here is on his second missionary journey. He enters Macedonia and is being afflicted at every turn. And he says in verse 5, he is fighting Without, without and fighting with fear within. And he's facing persecution. And then Titus here, as we just read, comes and meets him. And Titus brings comfort to his soul. When Paul sees God's hand in bringing Titus to his presence. It is Titus' presence and friendship and encouragement that comforts Paul. And this is not just Titus's presence. Titus brings news. He brings good news about the Corinthian church. Paul looks at Titus's joy in in talking to the Corinthians. They've listened to your letter, Paul. They're repenting. They listened to your rebuke, Paul. And Titus brings good news to Paul that the Corinthian church had read his hard letter, as he calls it, and had turned to believe again in the gospel. Look at verses 13 and 14 of that chapter. Paul writes, therefore we are comforted in response to all this. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And so Paul looks at his ministry partner, Titus. He looks at his joy at the response of the church in Corinth. And Paul is comforted by Titus's joy. In chapter eight of 2 Corinthians, Titus is a key part of Paul's ministry there in collecting an offering for the Jerusalem church. And Paul says of Titus there in verse 23 he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. This is. High commendation from Paul. Titus, by all standards, is an example of ministry faithfulness. Flip back to Titus. We see Paul's greeting to Titus, this fellow worker, this co-laborer, this trusted ministry associate. Paul writes to him, grace and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Gospel greetings. By the grace of God who saves us and the peace that we have with him. Greetings. This is a gospel embrace. In our text message driven world, I think we've forgotten what it means to greet somebody and the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be able to see each other face to face and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, we have this grace and this peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. It's, in a sense, a stamp of genuine Pauline authorship in this book that the letter was coming to Titus from his spiritual father, Paul. Look at verse 5. This is Paul's purpose for this letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so we can kind of gather clues here. Paul was most likely with Titus and then left him. There was much gospel work for Paul to do, so he left Titus on the island of Crete. But again, gathering clues, we can see that there's much work left to be done on that island. Now, Crete was known as an island full of cities, of small towns. In Titus's day, there were almost 90 of them. The island itself was 160 miles long, but width was sometimes only seven and a half miles and sometimes 37 miles wide. So a long and skinny island with 90 cities on it. And as the gospel reached this myriad of small towns and churches were being established, the main needs here are twofold. That Titus would put what remained into order We'll see that, what remains in the rest of this book. And then number two, to appoint elders in every town. Paul says, as I directed you. And so as Paul writes, we know that this isn't new instruction for Titus. This is repeat information. Yet Paul, by his humble apostleship and authorized by Jesus himself, feels the need to establish a line of authority through Titus. Titus, to be direct with him and whoever else might be reading this letter over Titus's shoulder, let the reader understand Jesus's authority is given to Paul who now is giving that authority to Titus. And like Paul, Titus is a man Under authority. He falls under the umbrella of Paul's spiritual heritage. He is Paul's co-laborer in the gospel. He has delivered a letter of rebuke to the Corinthians and collected money for the church in Jerusalem. And now Paul's task for him here is equally difficult. 90 cities appoint leaders. 90 cities put into order what remains. This task is more geographically extensive than anything that Titus has ever done. But this is Titus' task. This is why Paul left him here to put what remained into order and to establish elders, spiritual leaders in each town. This is gospel work. Fit for a son and a co-laborer. And I wonder what your gospel work is. So we think in this season and returning to in-person classes, being able to meet in person as a Bible study, and maybe beginning to do outreach events and share the gospel on campus. What is your gospel work? Well, we see in this gospel greeting that God uses humble and faithful co-laborers in Christ. He may not have an apostleship for you. He may not have an island for you. That's 160 miles long, but he has people in your life. He has classmates and coworkers and lab mates and roommates in your life who do not know Jesus that are your gospel work. And so be a humble and faithful co-laborer for the gospel of Jesus. I like to read Wikipedia sometimes. used to do Wikipedia races with my friends in high school. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. One of the things I've read about recently is the concept of a seculum. Seculum, not the plant, succulent, but seculum, S-A-E-C-U-L-U-M, for those of you who are spelling bee champions. A seculum is an early Roman conception of time. It's not a set number of years, but a concept. And it originally stood for a period of time from the moment that something happened that was significant until the point in time when all the people who were living during that original point had died. So an establishment of a city, a war, a new emperor, the period of time when that first happened until all the people who were living at that time had died. The seculum concept became equivalent to the lifespan of a person or the complete renewal of an entire society's population. And Roman historians used the seculum concept beginning in the second century to track wars and mark out their periods of time in their chronicles, their history books. And they described the seculum as having four parts. Youth, rising adulthood, midlife, and old age. Sounds kind of like life, right? And for us, the idea, the concept of a seculum might sound ancient or broad. or societal. It's a conception of time that doesn't capture our attention on the daily level. The, it doesn't quite match up with the urgency of our lives. It doesn't compute with the frenetic attention of our existence in the 21st century where everything is driven by our phones. It's too slow of a concept. It's too big picture, or too generational in its thinking. And for us, the concept of a seculum is mind-boggling to even think beyond today for some of us, let alone our lifetime. Grace on campus, this gospel greeting shows us that God, who never lies, who promised the hope of eternal life before the ages began, has sustained his promise for the duration of all of the secular in the history of the world added together until today he has sustained his promise for generation to generation. It ought to give us these gospel greetings the perspective an awareness, a worshipful appreciation, a sense of conviction for. The truth stated in Second Peter 3, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Tonight in this gospel greeting, we have seen the kind of work and the kind of men that God uses to spread the gospel far and wide, the truth about Jesus. Ordinary gospel preaching by humble, faithful men like Paul, the servant and apostle, and Titus, the son and co-laborer. But perhaps most importantly of all, this gospel greeting shows us that God has faithfully sustained not only his promise, but his patience toward us for the duration of all of the secular, of the history of the world added together. And he is patient toward you even today if you do not know Jesus. He is patient. If you do not know Jesus, repent. Repent believe, and find hope in eternal life. And if by God's grace you do know Jesus, worship, believe, and find hope in eternal life. These are gospel greetings that give us great encouragement in the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, we worship because we see in passages like this the grace of your gospel in giving us your Son, giving us salvation in Him. And so we rejoice because you, the God who never lies, promised before even the ages began this hope of eternal life. And this hope that we have is a confidence. It's an expectation that you will do as you've promised. And so, God, we rejoice that what you've promised is that we will be with you forever. God, would you, through this message from your word, save some even tonight, those who don't have this hope. Bring them to yourself. God, you've called them before even the ages began. And so now use your word to bring them to yourself, we ask. And for your kingdom community at Grace on Campus, we rejoice. Those who do know you, we rejoice in the hope of eternal life. It's to that end that we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.